Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as always. We also have Andy Slavitt coming back to give us an update about what's happening with healthcare. And then we have Glenn Martin from the Close Rikers campaign to tell us what's going on with the efforts to close Rikers. Before we jump into this episode, I just like to remind you that you are smart and capable enough to know about all of the policy conversations happening, about all of the legislation, that one of the ways that people in power continue to hold their power is by convincing you that you can't understand this, that they are the only people who understand the complexity of the system or the only people who truly understand policy. And that's just not true. It's one of the reasons why I started the podcast, because I wanted to have these conversations that would allow people in to a different type of conversation about policy and its impact than otherwise you might have access to. But know that if people haven't made it accessible, that that's often either a choice or they just don't understand that that needs to be a part of the work. But you can make them. This is yours. And part of your power is understanding that and claiming it. Let's go. And now the news with me, Clint Smith III, our resident academic, Sam Sinyangwe, a resident data scientist, and Brittany Packnett, previous member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing and a current leader in the education community. Hey, everyone. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Clint Smith, I, I, I. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. When I was on my way home to record the pod, I was listening to my new favorite jam. Uh, it's called Bring Back Barack. It was it was premiered <laughs> this past Saturday on uh, Saturday Night Live where Chance the Rapper hosted. The best part was that the video was like classic male R&B super group. But um, it was the it was the love song I had been waiting for, to be honest. That joint really they really channeled some Jagged Edge or Black Street. Yeah, or LSG if for my real R&B fans, if folks remember that one. Now that's advanced R&B. Like, I don't know that group. Yeah, I don't know LSG either. That's like R&B 201. I only took 101. What? Oh my God, I'm really upset. So in the advanced course, you would learn about LSG, which is when R&B powers unite. So Gerald Levert, Keith Sweat, and Johnny Gill... LSG, all the first letters of their last names came together and they had some real hits. And like, if you can imagine all those, all those voices in one spot, like, yeah, y'all were, y'all are tripping. That was, that was an LSG video we got last night. And like, I'm really upset that y'all didn't know about that, but that's okay. Go do your research, kids. I was, uh, I was very into Keenan doing the, the deep voice, uh, bass dude <laughs> role. Cause when I was a kid, my voice changed before like all my friends. And so everybody would always tell me that I should be like a late night radio DJ host. And so <laughs> one of my like what goals growing that? up was to grow up and be the, the deep voice dude in voice to men. And so I would just like walk around the house being like, mom, I really need you to make some chicken tonight. Cause 
I'm tired of I don't want no more pork chops, Mom. Let's have some baked chicken and some rice. And some rice. Man. No more pork chops, girl. There you go. But my point in all of this was I'm deeply thankful not only for the classic R&B references, but for us begging Barack to come back, even though it's not a constitutionally sound idea. I mean, it's not like what this guy as president is doing is very constitutional right now anyway. So I think that everything is in play and bring back Barack because this is killing us. True enough. And, you know, Serena just got married and the pictures were beautiful. It looked like such a great wedding. Oh, man. I just wanted to be like a flower on the table or like one of the pieces of Beyonce's beef ponytail. Like I would have done anything to be there, including (laughs) come reincarnate as any of those things. And she just seems so happy, man. Like she just seems so I think that was just the best part of it. And like as someone who is like still riding high off of my own wedding, it's uh it's it's tough to explain how amazing an uh, an event it is to have all the people you love together in one room, like celebrating the person you love more than anything. And so to see that radiating off a of, off of both of their faces and to see the little one in the wedding, um that was really, really special because our little one was in our wedding too. So it's uh, it adds a, uh, an entirely different uh, dynamic to the to the whole affair. And in her fly Nikes, she's just so dope, and she's such a champion. So last week, the House Republicans passed a tax bill that was regressive and harmful and appalling on pretty much about every level. Uh, and there's a lot to talk about in this bill, but I want to talk about a provision in the bill that would impact graduate students specifically. And as a graduate student myself. This obviously impacts me and my family in a very real way. Uh, And so let's use my school as an example. So tuition at Harvard uh, for a PhD student is about $45,000, and we receive a graduate school uh, student stipend for about $33,000. Living expenses for 10 months, so not even a full year, according to Harvard, the Harvard website um, itself, it runs for about $30,000 between books, supplies, housing, food, clothes, and other expenses. And so you have around $3,000 left after you've, you've used all of those expenses. So right now we are taxed on the $33,000 stipend because we, uh, like many PhD students, are given a tuition waiver so that we don't have to pay tuition. So while we are, uh, the tuition at Harvard is $45,000, we don't actually have to pay it because graduate students are often um, granted a, a waiver for that for those fees. But according to the bill that the House Republicans are passing, waivers would be included in your taxable income. So we'd be taxed an additional $45,000 for a total of about $78,000. And so this is a big deal because it increases our tax burden by a minimum of $10,000 a year. And because graduate student stipends are relatively modest, this would impact many people's lives and ability to pay for food and housing uh, and other expenses. And essentially what it comes down to is that it would make getting a PhD impossible for those who don't come from households that already have the resources and wealth that they can use to, to support their journey over like the many, many years of going to graduate school. And I can tell you firsthand how many of my friends and my colleagues uh, and folks that I work with would never have been able to attend graduate school, but for the fact that they received this waiver and the fact that the waiver isn't taxed and academia as we all know, is already a place that struggles with a lot of uh, racial and class uh, diversity issues. And, you know, I'm the only black man in my graduate school cohort, for example. Uh, And so something like this 
would make it increasingly difficult for folks who come from marginalized backgrounds to afford um, the opportunity to go or to have the opportunity to go to graduate school in the first place um, and would further undermine efforts to to create a more diverse uh, diverse academic um, landscape you know and and part of what anybody who's in academia knows that uh, graduate students are the ones who who do so much of the grunt work whether it's in the lab whether it's grading the papers whether it's teaching the sections um, and they are like an indispensable part of the the fabric of these higher education institutions and this is a really frightening thing because it it really makes it so that only the wealthiest people will be able to uh, attend graduate school in this way and it it just is a another way of uh, the GOP showing that they are like committed to to anti-intellectualism and committed to making it so that uh, very few people have opportunities to uh, for any sort of academic or social mobility. Clint, I really appreciate you for not only sharing that before bringing your personal experience um, with what this would be to the forefront. Sadly, this is par for the course. Um, and the recurring theme that we're seeing come out, not only from this administration, but from this Congress, is really about restriction of access. Uh, restriction of access to health care, to citizenship, to the tools to build wealth for you and your family, to rehabilitation if you um, have committed a crime or if you are um, suffering from substance abuse, um, restriction of access to a quality education and to uh, your ability to advance your in your field, in your field of study or to advance your family. Uh, and so I'm really glad that you brought this up. Thankfully, this, I think, is a piece of this uh, GOP tax plan that has not gone unnoticed. Often on the pod, we end up bringing things to the forefront that other people are not talking about. I've heard this discussed a few times, and it's so incredibly necessary. Because to your point, Clint, uh, we need academics of all colors and all backgrounds, uh, all nations of, of origin, et cetera, Coming into these fields of study, we talk all the time about what it means when data is cre- when data sets and evidence are created by people who do not come from the communities that are most impacted, who do not themselves understand or come from marginalized cir- uh, circumstances, how limited the data is, how skewed the picture is, um, and how uh, how restrictive the voice is. And so if we don't see the kind of people like yourself and so many others coming from many different places and many different backgrounds to do the kind of research and academic work that really shifts the culture and that changes our understanding of everything from policy um, to politics to protests and lots of things in between, then we're all really going to be in a great deal of trouble. And as you said, Brittany and Clint, you know, this is something where uh, I saw something on Twitter recently that 10,000 graduate students will have to pay an extra $10,000 a year. So a single person can inherit an extra $100 million, right? And when you think about it that way, it really is wild, right? I saw something else uh, that was saying, you know, we might as well ask folks, poor folks, uh, folks who uh, are students to, you know, basically write a check for several thousand dollars and send it to a rich person. Uh, and, and essentially, when you think about what this tax plan does, like it's exactly that, right? And I think that that is uh, where the GOP is right now and where, uh, sadly, uh, the dominant sort of political party and, and um, ideology in this country uh, that's what they're committed to doing, and they're doing so in such a way that is, you know, completely unapologetic about it. Um, you know, they—I think it was 
uh, Steve uh, Mnuchin or or one of the the folks there um, in the Trump administration who was saying that you know C- CEOs are going to be really happy about this plan. Uh, they put in a private jet tax credit, uh, so you know while they're increasing taxes on students, uh, folks with private jets uh, are going to get a break, a tax break, and get to write that off. So I mean, the question is like, how do we uh, on the other side? figure out how to actually be just as uh, strong and just as unapologetic about helping folks uh, who need help, folks who are low income, folks who are marginalized, folks who are students and trying to learn and get ahead, uh, just to the same extent and just as uh, fervently as we're seeing the GOP being committed to to doing the exact opposite. So Sam, Brady, and Clint, you've laid out massively why this why this makes no sense. I'll just add the context is that these waivers are awarded to an estimated 145,000 graduate students and about 27,000 undergrads, according to the College and University Professional Association for Human Resources. And their data also shows that about 60% of the graduate students who receive waivers are seeking degrees in sciences and technology. So this would have a disproportionate impact on the sciences and most importantly, scientific research. The other thing is that according to the Association of Public and land-grant universities, they note that about 55% of all graduate students had an adjusted annual gross income of $20,000 or less, and about 87% had incomes of $50,000 or less. So the graduate students and the undergraduates doing some of the most incredible research across the country need these waivers to be able to sustain any lifestyle that allows them to have a life and to do this research. And it just makes no sense that these waivers are a part of the conversation about being changed in the negative at all. So my piece of news is an article from Brookings, uh, which looks at a recent study from Lindsay Blom and Tilsley. Uh, on diversity of teaching uh, and the impact that that has on student outcomes. So what they find is while almost half of students are students of color, so students aged 5 to 17, nearly 80% of young teachers, so teachers ages 25 to 34, were white. So a huge disproportionality between the, the teachers and the students that they're serving. Uh, And they try to answer the question of why this is the case. And what they find is that college degree attainment explains uh, a large proportion of this disparity, Uh, specifically that uh, white and Asian uh, populations are more likely to have a bachelor's degree, uh, which is in many cases a precondition to being a teacher. Uh, And so specifically, 65% of Asian young adults held bachelor's degrees, 40% of white young adults held bachelor's degrees, but only 21% of black young adults and 16% of Hispanic young adults held bachelor's degrees. Uh, And so because of this disparity, and as we know, this disparity comes from a enduring systemic uh, racism in education. And of course, throughout society uh, where, you know, schools that are, have disproportionate number of students of color are less likely to be funded well, or less likely to have high quality teachers. Uh, And as we find out uh, through this article, are also less likely to have teachers that reflect those students in terms of race and in terms of uh, experience. Uh, and that can make an impact as well. And so they go on to find that the race and gender of the teacher matters. And specifically that black male students that have at least one black teacher in third, fourth, or fifth grade uh, have significantly better educational outcomes. Uh, and so on a personal level, you know, this uh, really hits home because, you know, I grew up in Orlando, Florida. Uh, and I never had a teacher uh, who was black. 
uh, until sophomore year of high school. Uh, and I never had a black male teacher uh, throughout uh, my educational career. So from kindergarten uh, all the way through high school and even into college. So I, um, as you can imagine, spend a lot of my time talking about the importance not only of um, of culturally responsive pedagogy, as we've talked about before on the pod, and ensuring that the actual things and styles of teaching put in front of students are responsive to their culture, um, but on the importance of a diverse teaching force. Great teachers come in all shapes and sizes, but folks understand that when you have the additional opportunity for impact of putting someone who um, shares racial or and or economic background with students, the additional impact that it can have on young people. And this is a part of a growing body of research that shows that a diverse teaching force is not just necessary morally. It's also a matter of efficacy. Um, and so I end up in conversations so many times where people want to say, well, these conversations about race or identity or identity politics are separate from good teaching. This is yet another study that shows that identity is not separate and that these false dichotomies do not serve children well. Um, when we have quality teachers from all backgrounds, kids do better, but especially when we have quality teachers that share the background of those students. I think we have to, as adults, continue to push people past the idea that race, that culture, that identity is separate and apart from good teaching, because at the end of the day, kids who are affirmed, kids who see themselves, young people who know that people are rooting for them and understand and affirm where they come from are going to do better in school, period, end of story. I think what's important for us to remember as well is that in 1954, following the Brown v. Board Supreme Court case, separate but equal was ruled unconstitutional and schools were mandated to integrate, which they did, albeit very, very slowly and reluctantly. For example, we know that some white school districts shut down the entire school system rather than have their children sent to school with black students. That's how committed they were to not integrating these schools. But what happened in that school integration process is that as black and white schools began to mix, especially but not exclusively in the South, white teachers kept their jobs and had their jobs protected by the school board while black teachers were laid off. And that phenomenon continued for years and is impossible to disentangle from the current demographic reality of our teaching force today. And additionally, not only was that bad for the teaching force, uh, as we can obviously see today, but you have to consider the fact that many of these teachers represented some of the only stable incomes in Black households and in Black communities. And when they were fired, it made entire Black families financially unstable. You know, I was I was most recently the chief of human capital in Baltimore City Public Schools. And before that was the senior director of human capital in Minneapolis Public Schools. In both districts, I was responsible for the hiring of all staff, including all teachers. And in, in both places, we sort of lost about 10% of the teachers a year. Certainly in Baltimore, we hired about 600, 700 teachers in a given year. And, you know, we'd always get people who would say, and especially professors would be like, you know, the district's not committed to black teachers, isn't hiring black teachers. And what we always had to remind people because they seem to forget is that 80% of the teachers in the country are white. They're like, the teaching force is overwhelmingly white. And that is for a lot of reasons, not many of which, especially in urban places, is that like, we just didn't want to hire teachers of color. It was never that we were sitting in a room thinking of, like, we don't want teachers of color here. It was a host of factors thinking about the production of teachers. So if teachers come from either pipeline programs or universities, 
some pipeline programs are much, much better at recruiting from communities of color than the universities are. The quality was so different. So I think on Minneapolis, you get some teachers who gone through four years. And what I'd say about a lot of teacher prep programs, especially at the university level, is that everybody got a 4.0. So at the district level, I'm trying to look at people, like I'm trying to make sense of people's qualifications or something about them. But everybody is literally the best teacher that ever came out of that university. So the university stuff wasn't actually helpful. We aren't having a serious conversation about certification requirements about the curriculum that universities are teaching, about who is applying to teach in certain schools and what districts have resources to recruit. And I think that that has to be a part of the conversation, that it is easy, and I say this as somebody who was responsible for it in a a major city, it was easy to say that we weren't doing it as a matter of like, we just didn't care. And that was never the case. There were a lot of other factors at play that the ed community was just not ready to talk about in an honest way in public. So I'm hopeful that that starts to change because as we know, a diverse teaching force is incredibly important to our our kids. And then you get this sort of vicious cycle where, you know, the system is so broken and excludes uh, folks of color from being able to become teachers. Uh, and then as a consequence, then you have fewer folks of color in the teaching profession. And therefore the next generation of students uh, does not have access to folks who uh, can understand their experience, have culturally relevant pedagogy, and that uh, can also have those high expectations and promote educational attainment. And so um, there has to be a way to sort of to intervene in that process at key points, uh, as you mentioned, Array, in order to to reverse that cycle. And shout out to, um, as as a matter of good news, shout out to the folks over at the fellowship. Uh, it was founded a few years ago in Philadelphia. Uh, a few weeks ago, um, a lot of us actually on the pod were able to attend the very first national convening ever of black male educators because the issue is not just in hiring people of color, but also in retaining them. So often in schools, people of color will get saddled with uh, additional burdens that other teachers don't have to handle. We see the black men teachers often um, not only being able to just teach their class, but being made into the disciplinary and taking on coaching duties, lots of other things that that make an already difficult profession even more uh, untenable. And so uh, the fellowship was created not just to support black men entering the field, but also to ensure that black men were retained in the field and able to um, able to persist in the work of education. So hope to see a lot more organizations like that um, sprouting up or if they exist, getting the kind of support that they deserve, because holding on and really wrapping our arms around our teachers of color is going to be critically important. So my piece of news is about Trump's comments surrounding the extreme vetting program. So when he tweeted about the extreme vetting program, I thought that that was him generally being like bombastic and and just ridiculous. I did not realize that extreme vetting is like, might as well be a proper noun and that it is being enacted by the Department of Homeland Security. So there's something called the digital Muslim ban is what it's being called in the advocacy community. And the Department of Homeland Security has actually been soliciting Um, proposals from vendors to create an electronic vetting program that will will vet people applying for visas, applying for immigration status. And the software will predict both, quote, an applicant's probability of becoming a positively contributing member of society and, quote, whether an applicant intends to commit criminal or terrorist acts after entering the United States. So, 
you know, we know that algorithms like this are incredibly biased, that they miss so much nuance that's important, and that this will lead to the targeting of the Muslim community in a way that we haven't seen before, that we know that mining people's digital footprints, their social media, their internet activity is not and should not be a proxy for whether they are terrorists. They're white men who have committed uh, acts of domestic terrorism for a long time, even recently here in this country, and nobody is vetting them in a way that makes sense. So it is unreal that this is actually moving forward. And it's a reminder that we have to keep our eyes focused on everything that this administration is doing, because I didn't even know this was a real thing. I thought that extreme vetting was like him posturing, had no clue it was a program that, that's being put in place. You know, this reminds me of uh, a lot of the reports that actually came from Edward Snowden and, and so many others uh, talking about the NSA and the work that the NSA was doing essentially to do the same thing, but more focused on uh, sort of identifying folks who, you know, they thought could be potential terrorists or wanting to commit terrorism. And this just seems to be the logical extension of that philosophy, right? That we're not only going to, uh, you know, probe everything in the entire internet that anybody has ever done uh, for clues or, or you know, what they would consider to be uh, predictors of that behavior based on, you know, of course, very little, if any, solid research. Uh, but now also trying to identify, you know, throwing this dragnet over entire immigrant populations uh, to, as they say, predict any potential criminal behavior of any sort. And what we've seen in terms of their you know, immigration policy, uh, just being an immigrant here who is undocumented, they consider to be criminal behavior because uh, that's the largest group of people who are being currently arrested. The largest increase in uh, ICE arrests uh, has been of people who were suspected of immigration violations. So just being undocumented, uh, not people who are suspected of, you know, actual criminal activity uh, in the sense that, that, you know, they try to portray this as. So I think some people might hear this and they might say like, oh, well, like if you're not posting things that are are bad in the first place or if you're not doing anything wrong then um then you should be fine right like that sort of seems to be a uh, part of the the public understanding of some of these systems or the way that or rather the way that they are uh espoused to us right like if you're not doing anything wrong you don't have anything to worry about but but to Sam's point like it's I want to really focus on this word like criminal and and how we talk about all the time how like what does or doesn't constitute as criminal is not like an objective uh, entity, right? Like what is considered to be criminal very much depends on who is doing the analyzing. Uh, and and if you if you consider everything, just imagine you know part of the plan for this uh, this effort is to like mine Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and any publicly accessible internet data that is available on you. So if you just think about everything you have ever written on all of your social media accounts, it is very possible that many of us have written things that could be decontextualized and skewed to be considered anti-American or uh, or or not even anti-American, but something that is uh, that can be used against us to, in this case, prevent someone from coming into the country, right? So like I really... 
think it's important to to understand that this is not simply like, oh, if you're not a criminal then and you don't do anything bad, then you can come to this country. Uh, what's happening is like a lot more insidious than that. And, and I think it's important for folks to know that this is going to be skewed and this is going to be molded and this is going to be twisted into something that prevents a lot of people from coming to this country uh, who otherwise should be able to. Yeah. Just to um, double down on this point, Clint, uh, in there, report as several technologists who essentially were vetting the extreme vetting said, quote, neither the federal government nor anyone else has defined, much less attempted to quantify these characteristics. Algorithms designed to predict these undefined qualities can be used arbitrarily to arbitrarily flag groups of immigrants under a veneer of objectivity. Um, I would even argue that a veneer of objectivity is not possible um, because none of these kind of descriptors or characteristics are at all objective. We see how code words and rhetoric gets thrown around every single day um, when referring especially to marginalized groups, especially to immigrants and people who are seeking uh, refuge in this country. And so I, I couldn't agree with that more. Um, and what we've all been saying and that this is an incredibly dangerous precedent that could be set. Uh, and at the end of the day, there really are no guardrails. Who is to say what these characteristics are? Who is to say what these qualities are? Who picked these people? Because quite frankly, if it's anybody from this administration or this Congress or the folks that they hire, I definitely don't want them to be picking characteristics. And quite frankly, even if they were people who um, I agreed with politically, I still wouldn't want them to be engaging in this way because it flies in the face of everything that our country is supposed to be. So I wanted to make sure that we took the time out to address what has felt like a real cultural shift over the last few weeks um, it feels like every day that we wake up, there is someone else who is being accused of sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, uh, abuse of power in some form or fashion. Um, the accused have been everyone from Hollywood moguls to industry insiders to everyday folks that some of us know. Um, I call it a cultural shift because that is what a lot of people have been describing it as. Not to say that it is a shift that people have been harassed. That has been going on since the dawn of time, sadly. Um, but that our public conversation about it and what I believe is a growing refusal to accept this as justifiable behavior is actually shifting. And that's something that I am thankful to see, although I am worried about what exactly uh, triggered it and which victims are deemed important enough to be taken seriously. There are a couple of things that I want to make sure we are thinking and talking clearly about. One is to recognize that the culture of sexual harassment, rape culture, the culture of permissiveness, um, really this culture of abuse of power uh, is like a smog, just like patriarchy, just like racism, just like sexism. It's a smog and we all breathe it in every single day. And it gives us certain mindsets about where the line is, about what is acceptable behavior, about which behavior should be whispered about and which ones should be outright criminal. Um, because we've all been breathing in that smog for a long time, many of us who may ourselves be victims of sexual harassment or abuse in some form or fashion may not even have realized that what happened to us was wrong because the behaviors were so accepted. Just like a smog, we begin to think that it's normal. We begin to think that these behaviors are okay and that we should just accept it, not make a big deal out of these things, when in fact, 
These behaviors are not right. They are not justifiable and they should not be allowed in any form or fashion. Um, we also have to remember that sexual harassment, abuse and assault is at its basis an issue of power and control, especially across lines of, of difference, across lines of privilege. And that's why we see these actions pronounced um, from from men to women, although we know men are victims as well, across lines of people with various uh, economic power, um, across people with lines of racial power. But we have to be afraid to not um, turn over the rock just because we're worried about all the things that we're going to find under there. And remember at the end of the day that the rules don't change as this gets stickier. Yeah, Brittany, really appreciate you uh, speaking on that so uh, eloquently. Um, and, you know, this is clearly this has been something that uh, all of us have been uh, thinking about and wrestling with over the last several weeks. And and for me, as a father of a of a young son, um, it really has me thinking about what it means to raise a boy in a world that tells him that things and people belong to him that don't. And what does it mean to raise a, a, a boy in a world that is, is so full of, of sexism and so full of patriarchy? And what does it mean to teach him to unlearn every day so much of what this world will teach him about power and about consent um, and about legitimacy and about value. And, and I think that that's something that, uh, that a lot of us raising young boys have to really push ourselves to be proactive um, in, in thinking about and in addressing because uh, ultimately it is, uh, it is boys who grow up in a world that tells them certain things are okay when they most certainly are not that become the men who are doing these horrific things to, to mostly women, but also sometimes other men. And, and yeah, and I think that, I don't know, I don't have all the answers. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know that that is what I'm, uh, as a father of a, of a boy, um, what I'm striving for and what I'm reaching for and, uh, and trying to do the work of uh, making sure that, that we don't, you know, that ultimately we're living in a world where, uh, he is not part of a, a culture that has uh, suggested to him again that um, that he has power over certain people, or that he uh, gets to determine what is or isn't consent um, when that really isn't and never should be up to him. One of the things you know over the past several weeks is we're seeing so many different people uh, being sort of exposed and and, and accused. Uh, is how the reaction and the uh, and how accountability sometimes uh, appears to look different depending on um, whether folks are you know in positions of political power. Um, you know, I think about you know we saw what happened with you know folks like Kevin Spacey and and, and many different entertainers, Harvey Weinstein, um, who were rightly held accountable um, and you know, pushed out uh, of their fields. Um, and then on the other hand, in politics, you see, you know, Roy Moore, it's still not clear. He might, he, you know, the, it's not clear whether or not he'll win. Right. It, but it, but it's, it's not clear that he'll lose. Um, you look at folks like obviously Donald Trump, you look at even Al Franken, um, 
you know, they're still there. Right. And so, you know, what is it that can hold them accountable and, you know, how, how do we continue to, to push, um, to make sure that, that accountability doesn't look different just because you have political power? There are three things that I think of when I, when I think about this conversation, the first is remembering that there are more people that have Me Too experiences than have shared their Me Too stories. So just because you haven't heard somebody's story around you doesn't mean that this experience might not be real for them. And I say that because there are people who I've seen and heard say things like joke and, and say things because they are like, oh, this person's not traumatized or or the person hasn't said anything. And they don't realize that they're actually inflicting their own sort of damage. So be mindful so many more people have been affected by sexual trauma and sexual abuse than have, have shared their stories. So remember that. The second is that, you know, we always talk about people aren't the voiceless, they are the unheard. And this sort of goes back to something Brittany was talking about, is that like, what are the conditions that people finally become heard? And and what will happen after this moment of story? Sexual assault isn't ending overnight, whether this moment continues for a little bit longer or not. And how do we start to have that conversation about like, what what about this moment allow people to like hear and think about it differently and, and see it differently? And how do we make sure that people think of this as a serious topic in all communities, regardless of the race uh, of the victim? And the, the third thing is that the the abusers aren't disappearing, right? Like they are, they're still in our communities. They're still... Uh, people's brothers and sisters and cousins. So it is important that we are naming the trauma and that finally there's public language about it. We will also need to, and Clint and Sam and, and Brittany, everybody's talked about this, is that we'll need to figure out how we make sure the trauma goes away in the future. So what does accountability look like for people and what does healing look like? Because surfacing the trauma and just having it exist in the world is not in and of itself healing. Like that's not a, that is not, it is important that people aren't, that people don't feel like they have to be silent. And it's important that people are being heard. That is not synonymous with healing and accountability. So we need to figure out how do we change the way that people, young, young people think about power and consent as they grow up and, and people think about their access to other people's bodies. And, and, and how do we do that work in schools and churches at home? Like that has to be the transformative part of the conversation moving forward. I'll just close by saying that as people have bravely come forward and shared their stories in whatever form or fashion they have felt comfortable to do so, unfortunately, I have seen responses of everything from insulting of victims to the complete erasure of victims because other people deem their opinion about the situation more important to utter and complete victim blaming Um to a real denial that this person could be guilty of anything. Um, And I would ask that as these stories continue to come out, because they will, um, whether it is in your intimate circle or it is happening publicly, that you stop, that you listen, that you listen with a great deal of compassion and not with trying to evaluate the merits or the validity of someone's story through your own lens. Um, And that as you do that, you are also examining yourself. You are examining how you've breathed in the smog and how it has manifested in your life. And I'm talking about all people right now. Um, And examine ways in which you have to be very careful in how you wield and think about power and privilege in your own life. 
if it is gender privilege, if it is privilege of sexual orientation, if it is privilege of age, if it is power and privilege of money um, or position of authority, any power that you have possession of can be abused in ways that meet, that traumatize people, that um, that create tragedy in people's lives. And that can mean that you too can cross a line. And so instead of always reacting, instead of always telling the victims that they're wrong, let's actually get to the root of this cultural issue and take collective responsibility for it, especially when you are in the position of power. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people 
today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Andy Slavitt, who used to be the lead of Obamacare in the Obama administration. Andy, thanks for thanks for being back on Party of the People. What is going on with healthcare? Well, healthcare is back in the news. Uh, this time, the tax bill that's being considered in Congress is actually a disguised version of healthcare repeal, and uh, it just passed the House and is going to be considered by the Senate the week after Thanksgiving. What's in it? What's in it that we need to know that we probably aren't talking about? Well, so the tax bill which, you know, in a nutshell, uh, is a big corporate tax cut and actually a tax cut for the wealthy and a tax increase for middle-class families, people making less than $75,000 a year. In order to get that bill through, they've added a feature which repeals the individual mandate component of the ACA. And what that means is it takes about 13 million people that have coverage today, and they would no longer have coverage. And that would also cause insurance premiums to rise by about 10% for everybody else. So it is a very concerning uh, addition. They've made it at the last minute, and it really is a tax bill, but also very much now a healthcare repeal bill. What is the individual mandate? Well, the individual mandate is just a portion of the law which requires people who don't buy insurance um, to pay a small fee if they don't get insurance. And what they would be doing is they would be essentially getting rid of that penalty. And the reason that would cause millions of people to lose coverage is because a lot of healthy people um, who buy coverage today uh, because of the mandate would would no longer be buying coverage. So that would be one, one reason why people would lose coverage. But then, because the healthy people leaving would cause everyone else's prices to go up, uh, it would cause other people to decide not to be able to afford coverage and not to come back to the market and insurance companies not to sell insurance in the market. And so it would start to cause other people to lose coverage as well. But Andy, if you're healthy, then why should you be forced to buy health insurance anyway? Well, look, I think the theory is that people are going to need to use health care and some points in their lives, and they're going to pay for it um, when they get sick. If they don't have the money then, then everybody's going to end up paying for it. So you get a system that works better when you have healthy people in it, even before they think they need to be in it. So that's the purpose behind the law. It's not a very popular part of the law, but it's one of the things that keeps people's prices down. And it's one of the things that if you were going to take it away, you would certainly want to put something in its place. You wouldn't want to just take it away on its own. And what's the next milestone that we need to be looking out for? Well, right after Thanksgiving, the Senate is going to attempt to vote on this bill. And the key question is whether or not this element of the ACA repeal will stay in the bill that's voted on. And I think many people are going to try to uh, get some senators to pull that portion out of the bill. What's the end goal? The end goal from the Senate is to try to get the entire bill uh, passed through both both houses of Congress and signed into law before the end of the year. And they really want to do it before the Alabama Senate race is decided. So this is going to be a, a relatively 
short time frame when people are going to be uh, focused on these issues. What's going on with open enrollment? And are people signing up? Are people not signing up? What's happening? I'm so glad you asked because that actually is some good news. The open enrollment period is going on between now and December 15th. And if you don't have coverage, there's some amazing deals. Uh, in fact, um, more than half the people that can that get on can find coverage for zero premium. Uh, and more than uh, 80% of people can find coverage for less than $75 a month. So that's really affordable insurance. Uh, and enrollment is going great. It's better than ever. It's a record year, uh, 60% higher than it was last year. And I think this is despite the Trump administration's efforts to uh, cut all of the communication uh, around open enrollment. So it just goes to show that people do want to be covered. They just need to be informed. Where can people go to follow you or to learn more about what's happening with healthcare? Well, certainly you can follow me on Twitter uh, at, at @aslavit, uh, and I'll be tweeting about things as they happen. Uh, but also, I think it's an important time to get a hold of senators in particular and congressmen and make sure they know that, first of all, this tax bill is just not a good thing. Uh, it's good for corporations. It's not very good for middle class people at all. And also that any tax bill that's really a disguised ACA repeal bill is definitely not what we want. Well, thanks so much, Andy. You know that you're a friend of the pod. Can't wait for you to update us again about what's happening. Thanks, Deray. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. And now my conversation with Glenn Martin, who leads the Close Rikers campaign. So Glenn Martin, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Glad to be here. Now, you are most known for helping to lead the Close Rikers campaign. But what what did you do before Close Rikers? That's a really good question. Um, I think the gravity of the campaign, the Close Rikers, really sort of put me on uh, a lot of people's radar. But the truth is, I've been doing this work for 16 years since exiting prison. Uh, many years ago, and then arguably for 21 years, if you count the six years of doing advocacy work while I was in prison, 
Uh, most of that time was spent uh, doing work around what we call collateral consequences, barriers to employment and housing and education, facing people with criminal records, the idea that criminal record discrimination is a surrogate for race and class-based discrimination in this country. And then from there, went to uh, work for at a place called the Fortune Society in New York, continuing to do advocacy work. Um, but I believe that people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. And the idea was, how could I continue to do advocacy work, but have that work uh, informed and executed by people who had actually done time in prison as an important component of movement building. Why were you interested in the Close Rikers campaign? Where did this start? Sure. You know, for me, uh, Rikers Island has played a really uh, sort of specific role in my life. As someone who was arrested at the age of 16 here in New York, where we charged 16-year-olds as adults, uh, I found myself on Rikers uh, many, many years ago. And was just blown away. You know, they call it gladiator school. Uh, that title is legitimate. We continue to call it gladiator school. When I got there, it was the most uh, violent place I'd ever seen, more drugs than I'd ever experienced in the community, uh, hugely corrupt um, in terms of correction officers and, and their behavior, everything from violence towards detainees to uh, having detainees do their work while they uh, close their doors and sleep on their desks. Um, it is a place where, you know, when I was there, there were 22,000 people. It was uh, hugely overcrowded. What a lot of folks don't know is that now there's actually half the population, which creates a huge opportunity. Crime is down to levels of 1961 in New York, while the jail population has been cut by half. The thing that has not been cut whatsoever at Rikers is the level of violence, and that's because the problem with Rikers is Rikers. And when you say the problem with Rikers is Rikers, what does that mean? Sure. So, you know, there was a scathing report by the Department of Justice in 2014 defining Rikers as having a, uh, quote, deep-seated culture of violence and a Lord of the Flies-like culture. Um, I wasn't surprised to hear that as someone who not just spent a couple of days there at the age of 16, but spent a year there at the age of 22. Uh, Rikers was purchased from a prominent uh, Dutch family in New York uh, from Richard Riker. And Richard Riker, is uh, he was the recorder at the time in New York City, which meant that he oversaw the criminal courts in New York. But at nighttime, he was part of uh, what was called a kidnap club. And the kidnap club would go out and kidnap uh, young black men, free black men, uh, bring them into court the next day and have property hearings and then send these black men into the slaveholding South. And so this is the history of Rikers when it was only 87 acres of land in the East River. Now it's 420 acres of land. And uh, here's what we see these days. We see uh, an island where 89% of the detainees are people of color in a, in a city where we are 56% of the population. We see an island where 80% of the people, the 10,000 people on there on any given day, are not convicted of a crime. They're detainees, mostly being held on very low bail. Uh, we see an island where uh, we hold people for anywhere between a year and 10 years as detainees. It seems as though the Constitution dies at the bridge to Rikers Island. Um, we see an island where, uh, because of the behaviors of many people involved in the criminal justice system, uh, in, in some ways, the punishment is in the process. I think the Khalif Browder case is the one that people are most familiar with, where he spent three years on Rikers as a detainee, got beat up repeatedly by correction officers, got beat up by other detainees, tried to take his own life uh, five times, and then ultimately was let go after three years by the district attorney with, um, you know, just to mention that uh, 
this case is not going to trial. Good luck. And, you know, of course, by then he was so traumatized, he took his own life. But Khalif Browder is, is one tragic case out of many. And so Rikers Island, um, you know, people often say to me, well, why don't you just push for rebuilding on Rikers? Uh, because of the proximity to the airport next door, LaGuardia, literally the architecture of the jails is uh, antithetical to how you build a safe uh, jail um, to the extent that anyone wants to have a jail at all. Uh, but the fact that the matter is that jails are not meant to be flat and linear. Uh, it makes it dangerous for correction officers and for detainees. And so what the COs do on Rikers is that they deputize detainees to help them uh, keep the place secure. And as you can imagine, when you give away that kind of authority, you never give it back, get it back. And it ends up being a very violent environment. Now, before we talk about sort of the, the architecture of prison, which, I, which I'm fascinated by, um, what is the significance of it being an island? Like, how does that factor into either the dangerousness or the need for change and reform? Like, or can you help paint that? Anybody who's not been to Rikers or who has no sure. familiarity with Rikers, like, can you talk about how far away it is from the city proper and, like, what that means for uh, the detainees? Sure, that's a really good question. Um, let me try to sort of walk people through through the image of what it's like to show up at Rikers. Uh, it's in uh, Astoria, Queens. Um, yes, Queens is part of New York City, but there's this bridge you find in a very remote area, and that bridge crosses over onto this island that, again, is very close to LaGuardia, uh, pretty close to the city, but, again, extremely remote um, because of this one bridge on, one bridge off uh, um, setup. And you get to the height of that bridge, and you look down, and you see 10 jails, and you see this island that is surrounded by a barbed wire uh, fence. It really is a mass incarceration model with respect to um, criminal justice. And it ends up having this culture where as soon as you get across that bridge and you get to the first security gate, the correction officers tend to remind you that this is their island. Um, the remoteness uh, of the island, I think, lends itself to the abusive behavior by correction officers. How do I know that? Because we have other jails in New York City, um, and, and I'll, I'll talk about those in a second. Um, but also the cost. You know, If you're running an island, uh, then you're doing everything it takes to run an island. You have a separate laundry, you have a separate uh, power plant, you have a separate bakery, you name it. And those things are pretty expensive to run when you're using correction officers uh, to manage the place. And so the cost per bed per year is $247,000. And that cost is not going to go down anytime soon. While we've cut the population in half over the last uh, two decades, the budget has actually doubled. And one might say, well, that's great if we're doing programming. But if you look at the budget and you extrapolate, it's a uh, mostly correction officer salary and fringe and, and those sort of things. Um, as you can imagine, at the height of the crack epidemic in New York, at the height of mass incarceration, uh, the correction officer union had a real stronghold on City Hall and did some really uh, great bargaining for their members. And it's amounted to the taxpayers here in New York uh, spending a quarter million dollars to uh, expose mostly children, mostly children of color, uh, to a tremendous amount of harm on Rikers Island. And again, we have these other jails and, you know, architecturally, they're not much better. Um, but if you look at the data on violence emanating from Rikers and emanating from these local jails, you see a huge distinction. And I have a theory about uh, why. What's the theory? 
Well, when you walk into the borough houses, uh, two of them in New York are actually in two of the wealthiest neighborhoods, uh, downtown Brooklyn and downtown Manhattan, two very expensive neighborhoods. Uh, literally hundreds of feet away, you have uh, two, three, four million dollar condominiums uh, close to these jails. I think people would literally live on top of the jail if someone would build a condo there. And uh, what you have is correction officers that are walking into a jail, yes, um, but into a jail from a neighborhood, from a community. And it's a huge reminder that the people in that jail come from those communities. I mean, the same correction officers that work on Rikers will sometimes rotate into these borough-based facilities. So, uh, you know, people say, well, aren't you worried that the culture leaves Rikers and ends up at the local jail? So two things. One, that hasn't been happening, even though you have some of the same detainees that rotate between the borough houses and Rikers. You have the same officers that rotate between the borough, the borough houses and Rikers. The other thing is uh, the campaign that we're running, the Close Rikers campaign, uh, while we've shifted the political dynamic here in New York towards uh, closure, uh, we are not comfortable with the idea of just cutting the population in half and then housing the folks that are left in these borough houses. We are demanding that we not just rip down these structures, but then when we rebuild smaller, more humane facilities, that they are built uh, with everything we know now about how you help someone who's uh, being detained to have access to social services, to their families, uh, to their lawyers. I mean, I had a paid lawyer that wouldn't visit me on Rikers when I was locked up there for a year. Uh, it is a place that uh, family members have to spend about seven hours visiting their loved ones, often being sexually harassed if they're women, um, if they're uh, men going through a really tough time to get in to visit folks. But even counsel lawyers um, rarely want to go to Rikers because you're spending four or five hours to visit your client for about an hour. Yeah, I was talking to a defense attorney who he was like, he'll just video conference in or call or something because he just can't devote an entire day to the travel required to get to get to Rikers. Now, let me just let me just be clear about some of the details. So Rikers is the only jail in the city proper. Is that right? No. So Rikers is on an island attached to the city, 10 jails. But then you have a jail in Brooklyn, New York. You have a jail in Manhattan, downtown. And you have a barge parked in the Bronx, which I have a hard time talking about. This thing was built 30 years ago, meant to last for 10 years, um, and continues to sit in the river off of the Bronx, housing people with little access to recreation, uh, law library, uh, social services, and so on. But those are the other three jails that we have in New York City. Got it. And so why are so many people at Rikers? Like, why why are there not people, like, why are the people not spread out at the other jails? Why is Rikers still a, sure. such a place? Sure. So you have 14,500 uh, beds on Rikers. Horrible, disgusting beds. Uh, 65% of the structures should have been taken offline years ago if you look at the sort of shelf life of, of architecture. Um, but in the boroughs, you only have 2,200 spaces. So mm -hmm. to close Rikers, you have to cut the population in half. On any given day, you have 10,000 people locked up in New York City. You got to get that number down to at least 5,000. But keep in mind that we used to have 22,000. But if you get the number down to 5,000, thousand and you end up building capacity in the community to get yourself to about 5,500, then you can shut down all of Rikers. 
Um, do we need to go further? Yes. Do we need less people locked up in New York City than 5,500 on any given day? Yes. But this is a huge step uh, towards uh, shrinking the population considerably, a huge step towards abolition. Um, and so the reason you can't just shut Rikers tomorrow and move people out is you simply don't have uh, the capacity. You have to look at things like speedy trial, uh, bail reform, and discovery reform. And discovery reform, to be clear, most people understand bail reform and speedy trial. Uh, but discovery reform in New York, uh, if you are on Rikers, the majority of people at Rikers take a plea. The majority of people that go to jail in America or a prison uh, take a plea. They don't actually go to trial. People watch TV and, and they think everyone gets a trial and a great lawyer and there's this huge adversarial moment and then something happens. That's not how our criminal justice system works. The majority of people, most of them poor, actually take a plea. The problem with that in New York is that you have to take a plea before knowing what sort of evidence the district attorney has against you. And so our discovery laws in New York allow for district attorneys to actually hold on to what they call discovery information, information, evidence about your case, until the day before trial. And so, as you can imagine, in a, in a state that has mandatory minimums where you may be facing 10, 15, 20 years in prison and the prosecutor is saying, you know, if you take a plea today, I'll give you 10 years um, or you go to trial and I take that offer off the table and you won't see the evidence against you until the day before trial. As you can imagine, it creates the very atmosphere that we have in New York, the atmosphere of mass incarceration and huge amounts of people taking plea deals, whether they're guilty or not. So, so what is the solution? So you talk about closing records. I know when I spoke to, uh, the mayor, Mayor de Blasio, he told me that it would take 10 years, just given how logistically challenging it would be to, to close records. He supported the close records campaign in our conversation. Uh, he, and he also noted when I said, does it have to take 10 years? He said that there, if there were some circumstances that allowed him to do it, uh, quicker than 10 years he would do it but that he didn't know if that would be likely so i'd love to know like what is the what's the plan how do we close records does it take 10 years what do people need to know about it sure so I think, you know, when the mayor says it's going to take 10 years to close Rikers, I think what the mayor is uh, pointing to is the politics of closing Rikers, not the actual logistics of closing it. I mean, we we built the Empire State Building in 13 and a half months. Um, you, can, you can build facilities in a much shorter time. Uh, the mayor is concerned with what we call NIMBY, not in my backyard. Uh, his belief that there are going to be people all across New York that are going to push back on the idea of rebuilding the existing jail structures. And, you know, look, some of that is legitimate. Most of it is not, however. Uh, crime is down considerably in New York. We have other jails that are in extremely wealthy communities, and their main complaint is parking, that, that the correction officers take up their parking. Um, so it's not like we're building jails from scratch uh, where, you know, the communities uh, like, what's this going to look like to have a jail in my community? We have jails that operate on any given day here in New York. What the mayor has not done, you know, the mayor talks about a tale of two cities. And when you think of the people on Rikers who are suffering, mostly poor people of color, the mayor shows up as a tale of two mayors. The fact of the matter is that the mayor should stand up and spend the political capital it takes to educate the public and to move forward the process, which means proposing, not just changing 
changing the policies that allow for people to suffer at Rikers and, and to ensure that the punishment is in the process. But to get the ball rolling with the process of figuring out how to have these smaller, newer facilities so that we can move towards uh, closing Rikers. You know, when we started this campaign uh, less than two years ago, it was a really lonely place to say out loud we should close Rikers. Uh, here we are now. We have the city controller saying we should close it, the Speaker of the Council, 32 council members, the mayor, the governor. And not only are they saying close it, but the majority of folks outside of the mayor are actually saying we should close it in, in less than three years. And so if you have the governor and you have other elected officials who have the power to help move this forward, all saying that 10 years is the equivalent of saying we're not going to close it, then the mayor needs to do what a mayor should be doing, which is to build the relationships with both the governor and other people can help move this forward. To get the to get the ball rolling, we had 11 city council members in Queens a few weeks ago. All stand up and say they would welcome rebuilding the torn the the uh, now shut down uh, Queens jail if it'll help move forward closing Rikers. Everyone understands that every day Rikers is uh, open, that there's a tremendous amount of harm, 5,500 uses of force by correction staff each year. So, you know, I have always known that closing Rikers lines up with the rhetorical values of our mayor, but I got to tell you, it has been uh, the most difficult part of this campaign to know that we have this mayor that holds himself out as a national progressive leader. Uh, and yet uh, Mayor de Blasio has done little to nothing to move this issue forward. In fact, there was an independent commission that raised over a million dollars and engaged uh, some of the most thoughtful New Yorkers and, and uh, organizations in the country on this issue and produced a report and handed it to the mayor uh, six months ago with a blueprint on how to move forward the closure of Rikers. It was called the Lippman Commission, and the mayor dismissed it as, quote-unquote, a bunch of volunteers who got together and produced the report. And it's, and even though that commission spoke to 350 New Yorkers and uh, did a tremendous amount of data-driven research on how to get to the finish line, the mayor himself produced his own report uh, a couple of months later after having spoken to no New Yorkers, definitely not the advocates. So it's great that he was on here suggesting that he supports the Close Rikers campaign. Uh, in fact, I saw him one time, and the, and the mayor said to me, Mayor de Blasio said, you know, hey, Glenn, you had me from from the first hello. And I said, with all due respect, Mr. Mayor, then why did I have to spend a couple of million dollars to get my first kiss? Because if we had him at hello, then I don't understand why so many formerly incarcerated people, so many families that are harmed, had to do so many rallies and faith-based vigils and marches. I mean, the mayor went all the way to Florida, and we had to go all the way to Florida to follow him to a fundraiser to continue to be a thorn in his side until he agreed to close Rikers. And then when he did agree, he made an announcement at City Hall and closed it to the public and made the announcement himself, minus the very people that convinced him that he needed to change the city's policy. Now, when Rikers closes, there'll be one jail in every borough, correct? When Rikers closes, uh, we'll look at the data, see how much people contribute to Rikers now, uh, and then uh, have a vision for shrinking that number. And then, yes, every borough would have a jail that uh, matches their contribution to uh, the jail population. But again, we're not looking at today's numbers. We're looking at reducing the population. Now, who's against the Close Rikers campaign? That's a good question. 
So most people who are against the Close Rikers campaign are people who are ill-informed, uh, people who don't have a sense of what the cost is, uh, people who don't have a sense of the fact that um, you save a billion dollars per year, for example, once you actually close down Rikers and have these smaller uh, facilities operating. Uh, most people don't understand what the research tells us about having people closer to their families and to their lawyers and to uh, community-based resources. And then you have folks like the union, which have just taken a strong line position on protecting jobs. What union? Um, the union, yeah, the correction union. So the correction union has been adamant uh, that we can continue to build on Rikers Island. Um, and again, it's for them, it's just bottom line. Like if it's going to eliminate correction officer jobs, even if it's five or 10 years from now, this is not something that they're going to support. And look, I, I'm not anti-union, but this is a union that has decided that demonizing black children um, is their way of protecting their jobs. And so uh, their public messaging includes things like, uh, you know, do we really want to create uh, these new cleaner, safer facilities for these children who have uh, killed other children and so on. And, you know, if you look at the population at Rikers, the majority of people at Rikers are there for very um, minor charges. But even the people that are there for serious charges, I mean, the idea is this is still America. You're innocent until proven guilty. And unfortunately, at Rikers, you're guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. And once you do prove yourself innocent, you've you've suffered so much at Rikers that, again, the punishment is in the process. I was there for two days at the age of 16. On the second day, I was stabbed four times in a cell, uh, the last time in my neck, by another young man, another child, who melted a pen into a dagger. And so imagine that. I mean, I was sent there for two days with a judge trying to teach me a lesson and could have lost my life in that cell that day. And yet my story is only one of thousands, if not tens of thousands. Um, so so the union and then there's some conservative uh, Trump supporters that are, you know, want to take an oppositional stance to the mayor and have decided that this close Rikers issue is, is an issue that they can get some traction on. Um, but those voices are in the minority at this point. Um, the majority of New Yorkers get why we should be moving towards closing Rikers. And I think the question now is not should we close it, but how soon? What are some of the myths that you think are out there that that hinder this work from moving forward? I, and I ask because in talking to people about mass incarceration, I've realized that that people have such wildly different ideas, even people who sort of nominally agree that mass incarceration is a bad thing. Yeah, sure. So I'd love to know, like, what myths are out there that you that you think slow this work down? Sure. You know, as an advocate on this issue for over a decade and a half, I'm always blown away by the amount of time we spend on, well, what else can we do with these uh, detainees if we're not locking them up for long periods of time? And, you know, in America, the most successful diversion programs for the last 400 years has been white skin and privilege. And I would argue that if we ran a criminal justice system that treated everyone the way we treat white skin and privilege, we'd have a much more fair and humane and definitely a lot smaller criminal justice system. So the first thing I'd say is that people of color uh, and poor people are not looking for a less expensive way to be punished, which seems to be part of the you know, driver around eliminating mass incarceration is the cost. And I understand the value of that discussion to bring conservative folks to the table. But if we're not having a values-driven discussion about a criminal justice system that offers redemption and, and transformation, all we're going to end up with is a new version of what we already have today. Um, and so, And so the first thing I urge people is not to skip over 
well, why are we doing what we're doing before you get to the point of what else should we be doing? If you look at the civil rights era and all the gains we made around employment, education, equality, enfranchisement, all those things have been eviscerated uh, by our criminal justice system for anyone who's been involved in the system because of all the types of punishment that come from having a criminal record in this country and the fact that we seem to be okay with criminal record discrimination serving as a surrogate for race and class-based discrimination. Um, the other thing I'd say is people often say to me with respect specifically to Rikers, they say, well, what do you do with uh, the people that you let out? And I think that that is a very rudimentary understanding of how our criminal justice system works. You know, at Rikers, while on any given day we have 10,000 people locked up, uh, annually we have uh, 65,000 people churning through the system. And I don't think people get that, that there's a churn. It's not just about the daily population. 50% of the population at Rikers turns over every 10 days. So essentially half the population is gone every 10 days. So it's not like one day we're going to open up the door and choose from the 10,000 and decide that 5,000 are going to go home. The idea is that we're going to shift the policies that allow for a daily population of 10,000. And so the same thing nationally, you could take you know, the thing about Rikers is that Rikers is every jail and every jail is Rikers. The the fact of the matter is that while some things are unique about Rikers, it really has uh, come to serve as the epitome of everything that's wrong with mass incarceration in this country. And there are elements of it that exist in jails and prisons all over the country. And so as we have this discussion about how to reduce the overall uh, jail and prison population, the first thing I'd say is let's not forget that it's not just about jail and prison. It's about probation. It's about parole. It's about electronic monitoring. And it's about the fact that our correctional system has uh, expanded and we need to shrink the entire beast. And then second of all, it's not just about who do we let go. It's about why do we do what we do in the first place? And I think if we answer that question and if we ask ourselves, are we locking up people who uh, truly can cause us harm or are we locking up the people we're scared of and who are we scared of and why? And we look at some of the underpinnings of our criminal justice system and how those very underpinnings have existed in other systems of oppression, whether it's Jim Crow, pig laws, the black code, slavery, you name it. I think that when we have that discussion, then we emerge with a criminal justice system that allows for restoration for both people who are charged with crimes and people who have been the survivor of crimes. Got it. So what's next for you? Uh, so we have learned some lessons about how to run um, a truly effective grassroots campaign through the Close Rikers campaign. The idea of starting out not by investing in elected officials and, and other people of privilege and access, but by spending a lot of time uh, at the margins and, and figuring out who those folks are, the people who are most harmed by the system, the people who have the most stake in the outcome. And so we hope to partner with folks in a few other cities around the country and try to replicate uh, the success of the campaign, starting out with the idea that people who are closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but further some power and resources. And how do we invest in those people and at the same time bring them into to closer proximity with the resources and the people in power that they need to move the work forward. The reason the mayor uh, and his staff said to us one day at City Hall uh, that they couldn't find out how to neutralize us is because there is no neutralizing people who have the most stake in the outcome of, of, a, of a campaign like this. The fact of the matter is that the people who started out with no resources in the first place are difficult to neutralize because it's hard for you to figure out how to grab it, right? Those are the folks that are going to 
continue to show boots on the ground no matter what, even when philanthropy goes away, even when people suddenly feel like the campaign is too political, even when folks feel like, you know, we want to play the politics of respectability. The fact of the matter is if you have a child sitting at Rikers on any given day facing the possibility of being killed, uh, none of those things matter. What matters to you is justice. And so we're going to replicate what we've learned and we're just going to ride it till the wheels fall off. And where can people go to find more information? Sure. Uh, folks should visit two different websites. Uh, if they're interested in the Close Rikers campaign, they should visit CloseRikers.org. And if they're interested in supporting Just Leadership USA, they should visit uh, JustLeadershipUSA.org or JLUSA.org. And we didn't really talk about that, so we should. What does Just Leadership do? So we're a membership organization. Uh, we're national. Uh, we do advocacy work, uh, like some of the work I just mentioned on the Rikers campaign, but we're also a leadership training organization. We identify people who've been involved in the criminal justice system anywhere from three years on probation to 40 years behind bars, and we invest in their leadership. Uh, so in three short years, we have uh, invested in the leadership of 366 formerly incarcerated people from 29 states plus D.C., we have a year-long training called Leading with Conviction that we do here in New York. Um, we pay the full cost of having those folks join us, and um, we essentially are not creating leaders. We're investing in leaders, and when they leave from us, there's a few things that they've learned. One is to take responsibility for the outcome they're producing in relationships. Uh, two is that you invest in the leadership of others as a way to grow your own leadership. And three is that asking for feedback is another way to strengthen your leadership. And so we see those very people as the key to our overall mission of cutting the number of people under correctional supervision in this country in half by 2030. And people often ask me, how did I come up with half by 2030? And that's a really easy one for me. I have a child and his name is Joshua, and he was three when I launched the organization. And black men in this country have a one in three chance of being in prison by the age of 18, and Joshi will be 18 in 2030. And so this is very personal for me, just as much as, as it is professional. And and one of the questions I ask everybody is, you know, in this context of it feels like the world's fallen down and the things aren't changing in a positive way as quickly as people want them to be, uh, how, what do you say to people who are losing hope or who have lost hope in moments like this? Sure. So I think the folks who are at most um, sort of, when I think of who can be harmed the most by our current system, uh, it happens to be the people who have already faced the most disruption. And, you know, at a time of a tremendous amount of disruption in our country, I think those are actually the very people we should be investing in, the very people who can lead us um, out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into, people who have actually already experienced a tremendous amount of disruption, people who are already the most uh, marginalized. And so I would, I would tell people who are listening who feel vulnerable by the policies that are emanating from D.C. and the rhetoric and so on, that it's in these moments that lead their leadership matters uh, the most. Um, and with respect to criminal justice, you know, what, what's fascinating is 90% uh, of the people in cages in this country are on the state and local level. And so while there is a role that the federal government plays, um, the fact is we should be holding our local elected officials accountable. And even our elected officials that label themselves as progressive, probably particularly those folks, um, you want to show evidence of resisting what's happening uh, in D.C., the place you can do that is uh, our criminal justice system and shrinking the footprint of our correctional system in the lives of all Americans. 
And so I actually am very hopeful that uh, with all of this rhetoric out there, I think what it did was really peel back the onion and help reaffirm things that people of color and poor people have been saying forever in this country. And, and so I think once we've recognized that those things are a reality, um, you know, there's two things you can organize in this country. You can organize money, you can organize people. And I think now is a time when we should be organizing people and deepening relationships uh, towards a country that, you know, lives up to the values that we talk about rhetorically, uh, values that allow people to grow and, and have hope and have opportunity. And so when this president got elected, I remember reaching out to our hundred, couple of hundred leaders around the country and asking them, what should we be thinking about in terms of strategy? And across the board, um, there was a resounding um, we should. There was a resounding message that we should double down. That we should do more of what we're doing. We should continue to invest in the folks who are furthest on the margin to pull them towards the center, because those are the folks that are going to um, help us to navigate the rough waters. And uh, what's a piece of advice that stuck with you over the years? You know. When I was in prison for six years, uh, the toughest day for me, the day when I finally cried, was the last day. I was on my way out of prison, and I couldn't, I couldn't really. In the moment, it was difficult to understand what was happening in that moment because you would think that when you're leaving prison after six years, the day when you're leaving would be your happiest. And it was tough for me because I realized we lock up some of America's best and brightest. And you know what stayed with me is that as a leader even when other people don't believe, right? Even when other people can't understand the vision, that if you have leaders who are willing to speak their truth and to paint a picture for everyone else and hold on to that vision and hold on to that dream long enough just for people to say, what if? I think if you can get people to the point of saying, what if? What if the world looked that way? What if we didn't do things that way? What if we did things this way? Um, I think that, you know, if you look historically, you know, going forward, it's hugely daunting to think about eliminating mass incarceration. But if you look historically in this country and elsewhere, you see how the vision of one person that ultimately becomes the vision of many people is the only way to the finish line. And so I would tell people to hold on to that hope and to continue to lead. And most important, when your knees are shaking is is when it's most important for people to stand up and show leadership. Well, thank you, Glenn. I consider you a friend of the pod, and I can't wait to have you back soon to give us an update on what's happening. Cool. It's good to be here, man. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for joining us on Pod Save the People. Make sure that you tell a friend. Make sure that you rate it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and I'll see you back here next week. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow.